Hello everyone, Amelia Allen popping in for a little midweek altitude crime update. I told you guys I was not going to give you a lack of content this week. This is going to be an update on where things are in the Mark Redwine trial that is currently happening. If you haven't heard of this case, Mark Redwine is accused of killing his 13-year-old son, Dylan Redwine, during a court-ordered visit. Dylan went missing in 2012, and his father was not arrested until 2017. COVID-19 ended up throwing a huge wrench in getting the trial off and running. So here we are, four years later, finally seeing a courtroom for real. If this is your first time listening to a piece about this case, I highly recommend going back and listening to the two-parter episode 9 and 10, which details the case, as well as the update episode that came out right after opening statements. There is a ton to unpack in this case, so I am only going to be covering the new information that we have, so if you start here, you might be pretty lost. (laughs) So I have looked over the last two weeks of the case, and this is a basic breakdown of what testimony has happened so far. To eliminate any confusion, I will always refer to Dylan as Dylan. So if I use just the last name Redwine, I am referring to his father, Mark Redwine. So let's go over who we have seen on the stand so far. And these have all been prosecution witnesses up to this point. Elaine, Dylan's mom, was one of the first to testify. And this was a tearful one. She recounted most of what we already know and talked about frantically looking for Dylan while Mark Redwine seemed pretty unconcerned. Shelley Bradbury reported for the East Bay Times that Elaine texted Redwine at 6.35 p.m. on the day Dylan went missing, saying, quote, He wouldn't just leave. He would have called me. I am so suspect of you right now. How could he just disappear? Unquote. Elaine also said, quote, I was frantic. It was so surreal. You don't expect anything like this to happen to you. I figured he was safe because he was with his dad, and I was devastated that no one knew where my son was, unquote. The defense fired back during cross-examination, saying that her judgment was clouded by she and Mark Redwine's very contentious custody battle. Elaine did say during cross-examination that she didn't know if Dylan had confronted his father about lewd photos. And most interestingly, during Elaine's testimony, the recorded phone call between Elaine and the marshal's office to report Dylan missing was played. This confirmed that Mark Redwine did not report Dylan missing earlier in the day. The coverage by Kim Posey for Fox 31 played the recording that said, quote, we don't have a record of it, unquote. And that is something that is reported on differently a lot through the last few years. Some will say that he reported Dylan missing, some say that he did not. So here we have very clear evidence that Mark Redwine did not report Dylan missing to the marshal's office earlier on the day that Dylan went missing and that it was his mom that did it later in the evening. Elaine's testimony was followed by multiple of Dylan's friends, and just a sign of how long this saga has continued and how things have changed, the kids who testified last saw Dylan when they were entering teenagerdom, and now they are in their mid-twenties as they're recounting their last moments with him. 
Kristen Bard was Dylan's girlfriend at the time that he went missing. Kristen had lived across the street from Dylan while he lived in Colorado Springs for a brief time with his mom and Corey. She said that Dylan and his dad had already been kind of estranged for a few years prior to that fateful Thanksgiving visit. And he had said that he was both scared to visit his father and just had a general bad feeling about the trip. Kristen was able to provide pictures of Dylan from a few days before he left for Durango, showing that he didn't have any visible wounds or cuts that could have otherwise explained the blood evidence in Mark Redwine's home. Joseph Ceballos and another friend had a sleepover with Dylan just the night before he left for Vallecito to visit his father. Joseph would hug Dylan for the last time when Elaine picked him up from the sleepover to go to the airport. According to Shelley Bradbury's reporting for the Canyon City Daily Record, Joseph said he, quote, could see fear inside his eyes, unquote. Joseph said Dylan didn't really talk about his father other than to say that he just did not want to go visit him. Ryan Nava also took the stand. He was the friend that Dylan was meant to see at 6.30 the morning after arriving in Durango. Ryan had said he only knew of Dylan hitchhiking once, and it was actually in an instant where Ryan, Dylan, and a third friend were caught in the snow while walking in very light clothing, and all three of them took a short ride from a stranger. Ryan didn't know that there was anything off in Dylan and Mark Redwine's relationship. He honestly had thought that the two were best friends. Fernando Stubbs was another friend of Dylan's in Durango that testified. Ryan Nava had actually gone to Fernando's house later the day he was supposed to see Dylan and had sent Dylan texts to meet at Fernando's house. Then later in the day, Mark Redwine had come to Fernando's house to search for Dylan. If you remember from episode 10, this was one of Redwine's moves that was painted as being pretty nefarious. The theory was that if he had killed Dylan, he would have his phone and know to go look at this particular house. But this by no means has been any kind of smoking gun, as you would assume a parent missing a child would check all of their friends' houses. Adam Harvey, another friend, did not get the impression that Dylan was eager to see his father, but Dylan was much more excited to see his old Durango friends on the trip. All of Dylan's friends were somber in recounting their last times with him, but Amanda Saxton, whom Dylan called Sissy, broke down on the stand while reading texts she'd sent to Dylan in the weeks after he had gone missing. Bradbury reported on Amanda reading a text that said, quote, Dylan, you probably won't get this, but in case you do, I just want to tell you that I've liked you forever. I love you, and I've loved you to this day. You mean so much to me. I promise I will find you, and that's a promise I'm willing to keep until the day I die, unquote. Had Dylan lived, he and Amanda would have met at the Durango Community Recreation Center the day after Thanksgiving. The defense worked to build their own version of these friends' accounts. They used the testimony to show how Dylan had previously been known to hitchhike or walk off to process problems he was having. One of the theories the defense has supported is that Dylan had left to hitchhike to a friend's house in Bayfield and that something happened to him after that. 
They also tried to write off Dylan's reluctance to go to his father's house as being influenced by the adults in a custody paddle that was very contentious and that they were potentially kind of using him as a tool in. Next on the stand was Dylan's brother, Corey Redwine. His testimony shed a lot of light on the details of how Dylan felt about the lewd pictures he found of his father. This frames the motive that the prosecution has set forward, which is that Redwine killed Dylan in a rage after an altercation involving these photos. It also provided some clarification on how the photos were actually found. So both boys were on a Midwest road trip with Redwine in 2011. It was then that Dylan was using Redwine's computer and came across the pictures, and he also showed them to Corey. Corey then documented them by taking pictures on his phone. A year later, in August 2012, while Dylan was on a different trip with his father, Dylan texted Corey asking for the pictures while he was in an argument with Mark Redwine. Corey refused to send the photos as he did not want to inflame an argument between the two. But Corey had confronted Redwine over the photos the following day by sending them directly to him via text message. This incident happened about three months prior to Dylan going missing. Corey originally denied in court sending the text to Redwine until he was shown an FBI report on the stand in which the agent had seen the text exchange and then he admitted to that happening. After Dylan went missing, Corey was really frustrated about Redwine's lack of involvement in the searches as well as lack of involvement in getting any updates on Dylan's case. The defense fired back that Redwine could not have killed Dylan in a rage because when sent these pictures, he had responded to Corey with a lecture instead of really blowing up over these very intimate photos. So they posed that as that he just didn't have that in him to react that way. Corey's testimony was not without emotion. Michael Kenopasik reported for Fox 31 that Corey had said of his father, quote, I still love him. I wish I didn't have to be here, unquote. Amber Harrison also took the stand. She was Elaine's attorney in both the 2008 divorce from Mark Redwine and the following 2012 custody petition. And she also got emotional during her testimony. She recounted how Dylan had asked the judge directly in the custody case to live with his mom. He had also mentioned his overall disgust with the photos and his dad because of them. Another testimony was from Kathy Berry. She and another woman got in an altercation with Redwine outside his home after Dylan went missing. She basically called him a not great name in conjunction with what was in the photos, and in response, Redwine picked up a log and made it seem like he was going to attack her, but he stopped just short of a physical altercation. So this brings us up to the second week of the trial, which was last week. On day six of the trial, a DNA expert testified and detailed the DNA evidence found throughout Mark Redwine's home. While the report was thorough, the expert could not confirm how long the blood had been there. And the defense posed that the blood evidence found was tiny and that the overall cadaver dog evidence was pretty much pure nonsense. This was followed by a testimony from Upper Pine River Deputy Fire Chief Roy Veerland. 
He helped with the first search for Dylan. According to KRQE, Freeland said that Redwine seemed disheveled and, quote, concerned, but he was not frantic at all, unquote. Freeland had confirmed that there was none of Dylan's belongings in the home and used a pillow from the couch as an initial scent for search dogs. He couldn't get a response from dogs off of the item much outside of the house. So Freeland is still suspicious to this day if Dylan had ever actually used the pillowcase or not. He also recounted that the first search on the day Dylan went missing was called off at 1 a.m. that night, but he had seen the lights in Mark Redwine's house go off two hours before at around 11 p.m., making him seem not quite like a very concerned parent. The following day, Vreeland said that Redwine watched searchers but didn't offer to help or show interest like both Elaine and Corey had at that point. The defense posed in cross-examination that Redwine was told to avoid the search and let authorities, volunteers, etc. do their work. The marshal that Mark Redwine talked to the day Dylan went missing but did not file a report with also took the stand. According to KRQE, Bayfield Marshal Sergeant Daniel Adea said, quote, he didn't seem to have concern about his son being missing, unquote. Sean Boris, who was one of Mark Redwine's co-workers, also testified. He said Redwine was in the office just before he reported Dylan missing. And Boris said that Redwine looked tired and disheveled. But on cross-examination, the defense immediately refuted that this was not the same description and or testimony that the witness had made during his initial interview. So this testimony really didn't hold a lot of water. Next up was now-retired FBI Special Agent Margot Rusin. She did a step-by-step of Mark Redwine's house and highlighted how none of Dylan's belongings were found there. So on day seven of the trial, that was when we really started to get into the meat of the theory that the prosecution had set forward, that Redwine killed Dylan and dumped his body on Middle Mountain. Now retired investigator Dan Patterson took the stand to talk about the first set of Dylan's remains being found in June 2013. Patterson had monitored the land throughout that spring to see how quickly snow was melting and how quickly a search of the area could be done. A first search was done in May 2013, but they weren't able to get very far off the road due to what snow was still there. It would not be until the next month that investigators would find anything pointing to Dylan's fate. The part of Middle Mountain they were searching was steep and rocky and with no really nearby trails. One of Dylan's shoes was the first item recovered in this search in June 2013. Elaine and Corey were able to identify it as Dylan's, and this led to a more detailed search of the area. Next, investigators found pieces of a shirt and earbuds, as well as a clavicle or collarbone. Altogether in this search, investigators found a piece of underwear, pieces of a shirt, a shoe, a sock, earbuds, and three bones identified as Dylan's. These were a clavicle and a tibia and fibula, which are both bones from the bottom portion of your leg. A cadaver dog also helped locate one of these bones, which was actually within a number of animal bones. Patterson explained that throughout this process, Redwine never asked him for any follow-up information on Dylan's case. 
The defense pointed out that the investigator did not get a GPS coordinate of where the bones were found, but given the reception on the mountain, this was not possible. So Patterson instead created a really detailed map of the area using landmarks like rocks and downed trees to pinpoint the location of the remains. The defense also pointed out that the coroner was not called once the remains were found, and Patterson also had an explanation for this. He said that they were unsure if the remains were human or not at first. Uh, These are all rather slender, long bones that can easily be mistaken as non-human as well. Martin Brenner, a sergeant with the La Plata County Sheriff's Office, took the stand He was involved in the 2013 June search and was actually the member of the party to find the pieces of Schur and Dylan's collarbone. The defense brought up the coroner not being called again, but Brenner was not involved in that part of the investigation and had no idea if they were or not. Uh, The defense also took this time to point out that the pictures at the scene did not include evidence markers. Michael Hall, Elaine's current husband, also testified with some very intriguing information. Michael was immediately involved in the situation when Elaine found out Dylan was missing. He drove with Elaine and Corey to Durango that day. Michael had also driven to Alamosa to meet his mother. They met halfway for her to deliver items of Dylan's for search dogs since no items had been found in Mark Redwine's house. He said he was present for a search on April 23, 2013, just five months after Dylan went missing and the snow was starting to recede from the mountain. Prior to the search starting at Vallecito Reservoir, Michael drove up to Middle Mountain Road to look around. While the road is closed during that time of year, a vehicle can travel up part of it until they get to a closed and locked gate. Michael told the jury that he pulled over at the first turn on the road. And coming down the road was Mark Redwine. Michael was able to see him close enough to identify both Mark Redwine and his vehicle. Michael Hall followed Redwine's truck back down the road where the two went in different directions. After seeing that Redwine's truck was not at his home, Michael reported what he saw to authorities. Between the search and the first discovery of Dylan's remains in June 2013, Michael returned to the area and put up wildlife cameras. This footage is now in the hands of police, but it's unclear if this footage turned up any clues or evidence, so that might be something that we hear about a little bit later on. U.S. Forest Service employee Jed Botsford also testified in regards to the terrain and modes of travel on Middle Mountain. He pointed out how the road may close for cars, but that someone on an ATV could easily get past the gate using some of the off-roading trails through the mountain. And the defense worked into this pretty quickly. They brought up how a group called the San Juan Sledders comes out to prep the off-roads trails during the winter season. One person in this group has a key to the gate, as well as there being multiple times that the padlock has been reported to have been cut off it is possible that people could have been accessing this much more than we've been led to believe. They also noted that while deer and elk hunting is off limits that time of year, it is still allowed to hunt turkey and remove Christmas trees from the mountain, again making for more foot traffic on the mountain than we originally knew about. The last person on the stand on this particular day was Deputy Tanya Golbricht. 
She was out of town when Dylan initially went missing, but joined the investigation on November 23rd, 2012. Tanya was actually the one to rule out Elaine, Michael, and Corey as not being in the area and not connected with Dylan's disappearance. She was also in charge of getting warrants for multiple different cell phone records, as well as from the two cell towers in the area themselves. She was also present with Corey when he positively identified the shoe found in June 2013 as being Dylan's. Tanya talked about how seriously they took this case. She told the jury they fielded 900 tips in Dylan's disappearance and took everyone as seriously as the next. One tip even took them to New Mexico to investigate a boy on surveillance camera that looked vaguely like Dylan, but turned out not to be him. Biologist Heather Johnson was perhaps the most interesting and definitive witness in the case thus far. She said it was pretty unlikely that Dylan was killed by a wild animal native to the region. Bear and mountain lion, or cougar, attacks that result in death are really rare in Colorado. She testified that since 1900, there have only been four fatal bear attacks on record and only two cases with mountain lions. Right before Dylan went missing, Heather was tracking bear behavior, specifically in the area of Durango, to understand human and bear conflicts. She ended up tracking over 400 bears during this research. During 2012, bears in the area went into hibernation early, around mid-October. The latest winter nap starter went into hibernation on November 11th. Human-bear conflicts typically happen around sources of food. Think bear-proof trash cans. Even if there was a bear not in hibernation at the time that Dylan went out into Middle Mountain, there would have been no reason for a bear and Dylan to have an altercation, even if they were in close proximity. Additionally, at that time, when they're entering hibernation, bears are eating less and starting to kind of shut their system down. And a child would be pretty large prey and not what bears and mountain lions would be seeking out at that time of year. She also brought up that when a bear, mountain lion, or even coyote makes a kill, they usually only carry a carcass or pieces of one a few hundred yards away from the initial kill site. Dylan's skull was found miles from the rest of his remains, again pointing to it being unlikely that Dylan was killed from animal activity, and this severely hampers the defense's main theory. Daniel Foster testified as he was one of the hikers that found Dylan's skull. He had thought that the area was some kind of animal den because there was flattened grass and fur in the nearby brush. Knowing what we know from Heather Johnson, this seems unlikely, but it also doesn't mean that Dylan wasn't killed by a human and that an animal wasn't opportunistic with his remains. Brandon Redwine, Mark Redwine's oldest son, also testified. He mentioned that Redwine mentioned blunt force trauma multiple times on a phone call the day that Dylan's first set of remains was found in June 2013, and that Redwine was also very unemotional on the call. Brandon had little contact with Redwine besides a court-ordered visit in 2002. He started speaking to Redwine again when Corey informed him that Dylan was missing. Mark Redwine talked about other scenarios that could have happened to Dylan on the phone call, but blunt force trauma was the thing that came up the most. 
Brandon Redwine notified Deputy Tanya after this call via email. Mark Redwine's ex-wife, Betsy Horvath, also testified. According to Nine News' Janet Orvetz, Betsy recounted that in the 1980s on a remote camping trip, Redwine had said, quote, this would be a good place to leave bodies, unquote. She told authorities about the comment as soon as she found out Dylan was missing. Brandy Flan also testified, and she worked at Pine Valley Bank, where Mark Redwine held an account. She said that a joint account was opened in the end of July 2012, with both Mark Redwine and Dylan having access to it. But she said the card attached to the account was never properly activated. On January 28, 2013, just about two months after Dylan initially went missing, Almost the whole balance of the account was moved to Redwine's sole account at the bank. $2,000 were removed, and that left only six cents in the joint account. The end of last week, the testimony came that everyone has been waiting for. Forensic anthropologist Dr. Diane France would finally shed light on Dylan's cause of death. Dr. France has a load of experience, including working through the aftermath of September 11th. In her expert opinion, Dylan's skull showed a sharp force injury, as well as a skull fracture just above his left eye. And I actually had not heard this term, and it means basically that you're struck with a sharp object versus blunt force trauma, which would be something like a bat or a rock or something to that effect. Sharp force trauma was indicated by two small straight lines, which could only have been made with a tool. Although upon cross-examination, Dr. France could not confirm what kind of instrument would have caused this. She did confirm that the injury happened at or near time of death, which is referred to as perimortem. The fracture just above Dylan's eye was caused by blunt force, but Dr. France could not rule out animal activity, such as an animal possibly stepping on the skull. She had also examined Dylan's leg bones and clavicle about a year after they were found, and these bones showed no indication of foul play. All of the bones did show that they were scavenged by wild animals post-mortem. This left tooth marks and grooves indicative of animal activity on the bones. Animal teeth marks create U-shaped marks, while the sharp force trauma is V-shaped. Dr. France could not pinpoint a time of the injury due to the prolonged state of decomposition and the snow the skull was buried under for so many years. Scott Eicher also testified regarding the information he learned after reviewing call logs. Redwine sent Dylan four text messages the day he went missing and called him seven times. Dylan's last outgoing message was at 8.07 p.m. the day he arrived in Durango. When his mom texted him at 10 p.m. that same night, his phone pinged in the same location as where he was at 8.07. Redwine called Dylan one more time the following day. Then there were no calls or texts from Mark Redwine to Dylan after that. Iker discussed using a cell phone tower to determine location, but the remoteness of the area has made this difficult. Okay, so that brings us to today, Tuesday, July 6th, the first day of the third week of this trial. 
Now, I have not watched the full testimony from today, but I can give you a breakdown of what is in the media already. The day focused on analysis of communication between Dylan's devices, Mark Redwine's phone, as well as people close to Dylan. The analysis was done by Patrick Beyer, who now works for the U.S. Secret Service. So today we learn the content of the four text messages Mark Redwine had sent to Dylan on the day he went missing. According to Allison Silt's reporting for Nine News, they are as follows, quote, at 8.14 a.m., hey bud, out of the office, call me. 8.15 a.m., hey you, call me please. At 11.23 a.m., Dill, I am home and you're nowhere to be found. Come back so I can get you to Bayfield. At least call me, okay? And 2.33 p.m., Dylan, you need to call me. Where are you? Unquote. Byer was able to confirm the strange state of the relationship. Prior to visiting his father, Dylan often did not reply to his text messages. He also confirmed that all activity stopped on both Dylan's phone and iPod around 10 p.m. the night he arrived in Durango. Okay, guys, so that is the most up-to-date information I can give you at this point. But I do have a few thoughts on what we know about the trial so far. Musing number one. So I am not a fan of the testimony from Kathy Berry. She was the one that taunted Mark Redwine and said he looked like he was going to attack her. It seems like she doesn't know him otherwise, so I think they're just trying to impress how mad the pictures make Mark Redwine. But I don't really know how much this testimony matters. I would get mad if somebody called me the more vulgar version of a poop eater, too. So it doesn't seem overwhelmingly relevant to me. And I could have thought that the defense could have objected to this since I thought the jury can't use unrelated incidents to decide a case. But they also allowed Betsy Horvath's testimony about Redwine's comment in the 80s. So it looks like maybe I just don't know the confines of that law very well. Musing number two. I have to say I love the testimony from the biologist because it is just so specifically Colorado. Not every state has the amount of large predators that we do. And this is part of what I love about the science of crime scenes. Like, I think forensic entomologists that look at the bugs at a scene are so cool because it's so specific to how that insect works. And this is just a bigger, furrier version of that science. And on top of it, her testimony just decimates the defense's main theory that Dylan was killed by wildlife. Musing number three. I was really interested in Dr. France's testimony about the injuries to Dylan's skull. But in a way, I don't think it was the smoking gun I really thought it would be. Being that she can't pinpoint a time that the injuries happened... I feel like the defense can use that to fall back on their last theory, which is that Dylan went out in the woods and was killed by someone who isn't his father. Musing number four. Keep in mind, the burden of proof on the prosecution and defense are totally different. The prosecution has to prove this case without a reasonable doubt. The defense just has to create doubt. Basically, they just have to try to have a solid retort for each point the prosecution has. The prosecution is throwing balls up in the air, and the defense just has to shoot them down. 
And they are trying to do a good job of this. An example is where they're trying to show shoddy investigating by the coroner not being called soon enough and that there's not evidence markers being used. So they're really giving a go at it. But at this point, I think the prosecution is building a very stable case, especially with the testimony refuting animal activity as a cause of Dylan's death. I will be really curious as the trial goes on to see who the defense brings as witnesses. Okay, guys, so that's it for this update. I will plan on doing another one closer to the end of the month. That is when this trial is projected to end. But you won't know about this midweek content if you don't follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any thoughts on the case, please feel free to share them with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Well, thanks for tuning in and I will talk to you Sunday on Altitude Crime.